so you and I met in 2015 or so, right? Yeah. Something like that. And we connected about on a bunch of different things together. Uh, obviously, entrepreneurship, family, Jewish connection, all that. You had just left David's Tea at that point. Yep. Shopify, I think, was like pre-IPO, or maybe we'd just gone public at that point. And uh, actually, you, you you started working out of a little space in Shopify for a while, right? Uh, a little bit, yeah. And so you'd come in, we'd talk, but there was sort of this one centerpiece of interest that we always had, which was, for some reason, we were both fascinated with real estate. We, we did our first deal together that, that year. We did. We yeah. found someone who owned an apartment building that was looking for a partner, right. and you and I ended up investing in, right. in this apartment building, and since then we've- It's been we've a great invested, deal. been a great deal, <laughs> and since then we've invested in like a dozen or so right. apartment buildings together. Yeah. I don't know why we've always been so fascinated with real estate, but we have, and maybe it's because growing up, like our parents, our grandparents, we never, you know, no one ever owned real estate in our family, right? It's sort of a high barrier right. to entry in the way that like my first t-shirt business had a very low barrier to entry, like real estate is kind of the opposite. Well, and at David's Tea, I mean, I lease stores, right? right? So I met a lot of landlords and I saw how well they you did. Saw, and, yeah. and it just, we were always fascinated by it. Yeah. But every time we talk about real estate, we would always hear about this company called RioCan. I mean, they're- Massive, and they're not only one of the largest yeah. real estate you know companies in, in North America, but they also they sort of reinvented the model, right? They were yep. the first company, the first fund to ever bring the real estate investment trust, also known as a REIT, to Canada, as well as these open air centers, right? And it's retail industrial office, all in one one place, right? You see these big right. parking lots where there's like a Walmart and there's like big box stores, right. and there's restaurants and all that stuff also. And so I think you and I have known Rio Can for a very long time. And because of that, we've known the name Eddie Sunshine. We never met him. I'd never even encountered him before. Um, what a story, though. But we've been fascinated by his story and, and the Rio Ken story for a long time. And then a couple weeks ago, as we were thinking about our next guest for, for Big Shot, we began to ask sort of our, our network of people, who should we have on the show? And everyone kept saying, you got to talk to Eddie Sunshine. And... Eddie Sunshine, of course, as I mentioned, is well known as being the founder and the person that grew RioCan to be a fifteen billion dollar, right. you know, real estate fund. But remember, Eddie Sunshine was born, in fact, lived for the first three years of his life, right, in a displaced person, in a camp. displacement camp yeah. that used to be a concentration camp, right, in right. Germany. And for people who don't know, a displacement camp is after the war, after the Holocaust, they needed a place to put these these Jews who had survived. So they they stayed in these camps that weren't concentration camps, but they weren't exactly the Four Seasons Hotel. I, I mean, it was it was a tough place there. And, right. and not just that, his father, to make money in, yeah. in the displacement camps, he was a smuggler. Yeah. And he was able to make some money. And then eventually, his his mom and dad immigrate to Canada. They have no money. They don't speak the language. They have no family. They, have they no family. lost their entire family. And, and like everyone the is killed in the Holocaust. Children. Yeah. And they come to Canada and they move to London, Ontario, no, they don't speak the language. They don't, again, have, they, they know nothing about this, right. this culture here, no education. And Eddie goes on, goes to law school, gets into real estate and builds this freaking empire. And as he's thinking about retirement after building this iconic company and becoming this titan of real estate, he begins to start thinking about what his next stage is. And so he wants to get advice and so he reads books about philosophy and he speaks to his mentors and advisors and he, he seeks counsel from rabbis. He right, says. and he's not a religious guy. He's I not mean, a religious guy. Yeah. So he's getting all this information about what is next in his life. And he's wondering, what are they going to tell him? And then he tells us what they say. And it was just this, this mind-blowing totally. idea, which although it was so simple, it's yeah, so- it's not what you would think. It's not what you would think. No. But it changes the course of his next- his next phase. And I just, I, I, I love when he told that I story. I love how well he captures the immigrant story on what these people went through to build these fortunes, including himself and his parents and those around him. And he just really does a great job describing the sacrifices they had to make in order to get where they yeah, are today. I, I mean, I can't, wait, risks, I can't, I can't wait for people to hear that story. Take. That is going to be so interesting. The, the, those tidbits that we're going to be sharing on this interview, yeah. they're going to blow people's minds. Well, what you're going to learn in this interview, and, and, and you teased this out from him really well, is that um, Ed Sunshine has an incredible gut feel. And you asked him, how do you teach judgment? And I actually think Ed Sunshine just taught us about judgment he teaches, and how you make judgment. He teaches how, how to develop calls. that really, yeah. really well. And he was generous and yeah. he was kind. And man, is he aggressive and ambitious. And this is an incredible conversation. Great sense of humor, great storyteller, yeah. hell of a character. This, this is one of those guy. where people are going to be taking notes. Totally. Ed Sunshine, let's do it. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we're here. 
from the bottom, now my whole team in. Started from the bottom, now we here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. I didn't keep it real from the jump. Ed, let me read something to you. Um, as of December 31st, 2022, the Rio Ken portfolio comprises 193 properties with an aggregate net leasable area of approximately 33.6 million square feet. You have 10 development projects and a valuation of, of close to $15 billion. What you have built with Rio Can is, is incredible. But before we go there, I want to back up. Yeah, we used to be bigger. Used to be bigger. <laughs> Perfect. We'll get there. You're the son of Holocaust survivors. Yeah. Um, born in 1947, I believe, in a displaced per person's camp in Germany. Your father was only one of 11 children who survived the Holocaust. Correct. Uh, your mother and her two brothers were the only to survive out of 10. Talk to us about the early days of your life. Let's, let's start there. Well, um, I, you know, I've been asked before. I don't remember Bergen-Belsen at all. Uh, we left uh, Bergen-Belsen just, I was almost three. We left like in November. My birthday's in January. And, uh, you know, so I only know sort of a little of what my father and mother told me. Although we did go back to visit Bergen-Belsen. I've actually been there twice. Uh, and, uh, what was that like? Well, you know, I went to see the hospital where I was born. There was a hospital. Uh, it was because it was in the British zone. And they built a hospital. The Sir General Sir Dr. Glynis Hughes. Okay. Uh, hospital, but it was all shot up. The whole area, it's still a NATO base, uh, and it was being used to teach urban warfare. So we're going through this hospital, and some guide, there's a Bergen-Belsen Foundation, and he was guiding us around, and uh, we were walking on, like, cartridges everywhere. Crazy. And he takes me to room. He says, this is where you were born. I said, how do you know? He said, we have records. I said, okay. Uh, but we basically, they were Wehrmacht barracks, because uh, the concentration camp, there was a concentration camp at Bergen-Belsen. Of course. Uh, but when the British uh, liberated it, uh, it was rife with cholera and other diseases. So they took whatever Jews survived and they burned the camp down. And then they housed them and others that came uh, in uh, what were the Wehrmacht barracks. So, so my home for the first almost three years of my life was basically a little sort of curtained off area in a barracks, but that's, you know, that's the way everybody else lived. And my father says, you know, it wasn't a bad life. Uh, at its high point, Ber Bergen-Belsen is a story. I actually paid for a movie to be made about it, but, you know, the, 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 the tax deduction was good. The movie wasn't. <laughs> but the, the um, uh, it, it, at its height, it had 10,000 Jews, and, and it only lasted for three years. I mean, there's a lesson in here for, for some people. Uh, and three years, three and a half years after it was started, it was empty. Everybody had left because they call them displaced persons. They were refugees. Yeah. Uh, they were displaced. I know my two uncles that survived. They tried to go back to Poland. Uh, they were almost killed. Uh, there were killings of Jews in Poland and other countries after the war. Yeah. So they, they literally couldn't go back. Uh, but you couldn't get papers uh, to go anywhere. So people stayed in camp and it ended up very roughly, about a third ended up going to Israel. Uh, about a third, maybe a little, maybe 40% went to North America, mostly America, but the, some Canada was the hardest to get into. And then a bunch went to Australia as well. Um, but uh, we ended up going to Canada because uh, we couldn't get papers for Australia, so, or for the United States. And my mother found a long lost cousin in London, Ontario. And um, so I have a, believe it or not, a vague recollection. We came by boat over the North Atlantic. Uh, my father tells me he and I used to take walks around the, or told me, uh, boat all day. My mother spent seven days sick in the, in the cabin, seasick. And uh, we landed in Pier 21 at Halifax, took a train to London. And uh, the, the only story I really got, my father at my daughter's bat mitzvah, he never told me the story. Uh, he said, when we landed in Halifax, you know, the thing was, you know, he had a little baby. I was almost three. I had to have milk, but there was no milk, on fresh milk on the ship. So his first thing was to go to a store, just off the docks, and buy me some milk. And he realized several things when he went into the Got store. No money. And number one, he didn't have any money. <laughs> number two, he didn't know, have any English. And he couldn't buy the milk. So he said he sat down on the stoop uh, of the store, and first time since... 1939, 
you know, when his family, he says, the first and only time I cried, he said, what have I done? He felt helpless. He felt helpless and he figures he's made a big mistake because he right. was doing okay in Bergen-Belsen. He had a business going, he was doing okay. He, I mean, the truth is- What he, kind of business did he have in, in, the, right. in the camp? Smuggling. Smuggling. He, basically, he had a truck. Uh, he would go once a week or so to Switzerland. Wasn't that far. You buy vodka, chocolates, stuff like that. And then you go into the Russian zone. And the Russians, I see from the news in Ukraine, nothing's changed. The Russians were the world's best looters. And so they would loot all the German homes. Uh, you could trade vodka, chocolates, nylon stockings, whatever my father had, for silverware, jewelry, stuff. And then you take that and, extra, and you sell it in Switzerland. And so basically, and... and He's a merchant. Middle, he was, yeah, I mean, it was all sort of smuggling, got arrested a couple of times, but after the war, you know, nobody worried about getting arrested. Right. And uh, so he, he brought some money with him, but in diamonds. He, he didn't have any Canadian cash. Uh, diamonds so, were small, easy to carry. Yeah, yeah, they were in the heel of his boot, actually. Heel of his boot. And uh, so we were able, when we came to Canada, life, for me anyway, was, was okay. Uh, we bought a house within a year after we arrived. Uh, on Markham Street, which now is a very cool street, but just with the diamonds, or he had, he took yeah, on yeah, yeah. he had seventeen thousand dollars in diamonds. The house cost six thousand dollars, nineteen fifty. Wow! wow. <laughs> Something that came out while we were doing our research about you was that um, um, what had a major impact was the fact that your parents had every reason to uh, see themselves as victims. I mean, they lost oh, yeah. their entire families, yeah, and yet here they are. They arrive in this new country. And they didn't. They moved forward. And they, yeah. Talk, it, what, what was it, that like? It's, it's actually quite amazing. I mean, my father never really talked about the Holocaust until he was much, much older, until uh, he was probably in his 70s. Then, then he started talking. Just, it, it's like it didn't happen. Uh, my mother, you know, the odd time I, I'd say, how do you know uh, Abe Lehman? Oh, we were in camp together. Uh, I said, camp? He says, you don't want to go to that camp, Eddie. And, um, it wasn't a Jewish summer camp. No, that's right. no. And uh, it, it, uh, they were just determined. I mean, I, I'll go back to Bergen-Belsen for a moment. And I mentioned there were 10,000 Jews there. In the period of less than three years, there were 2,000 babies born. So think about these people. They'd come out of the, the worst thing that had ever been done to a people in history. Uh, and their first drive was- Start again. Get married, populate, yeah, and populate again, and start again, and two thousand babies. It's amazing. I mean, it's it, it's it's it kind of defies gravity almost that yeah. they would do that, especially because you would think their spirits were so crushed. That right. The idea of creating a family would be right. out of the question. How do you find joy in those moments? Well, they they, they just determined they it, and and when we came it. here, nobody ever thought of. The, I mean, they were victims, but they didn't dwell on it, and. The, the, I'd say, but the only sort of, besides being spokesman, which made me, uh, uh, you know, become very talkative, uh, but the, uh, I didn't know till I was about 12 years old, and I'll come back to why, that people actually had parents who didn't have an accent. Right. I didn't know anybody because the, the people that came, the survivors that came after the war, they didn't trust anybody. They may not have been victims, but they weren't very trusting people because, you know, they had reason. So they stuck together. So they were very insular from a community. Very insular from the rest of the Jewish community here. Wow. Uh, there was a real divide. It was divide if you were immigrant Jew versus one. Yeah, post-war Jew, pre-war Jew. Right. Totally but different. Rothmans are here, Sunshines are here. Yeah, Sharps are here, Sunshines yeah. are here. <laughs> but that generation, um, I mean, they were unique, my parents' generation and, 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 and your grandparents, I guess. Yep. They were unique in so many ways. First of all, what they went through. Secondly, uh, that they just started over. That's right. Yeah. And, and by and large, I mean, obviously some were more successful than others, uh, but they all had families. They all had businesses. Some bigger, some small, but they, yeah. were all, they were ambitious. I mean, part of what we- They're very ambitious. Well, part of what we find so fascinating, part of the reason that, that Big Shot came about was to archive the stories of, of I mean, we're calling it Jewish entrepreneurship, but we're really talking about Jewish prosperity. Yeah. And, and and this inherent desire to be successful. Why why did you go to law school? I wanted to be Perry Mason. <laughs> no, 
that probably means nothing. No, to and you. we know who is Perry Mason. Yeah, and and some Perry of our Mason was a TV it. show. Yeah, Raymond Burr was the star. It was on Sunday night before the Ed Sullivan show. You know, in those days there were three channels plus CBC, which nobody watched even mm -hmm. then. And um, you know, you had ABC, NBC, CBS. CBS, yeah. CBS was the big dog, and they had this thing called the Ed Sullivan Show on every Sunday night at eight o'clock. And, and everybody watched, right? Everybody watched it. I mean, the Beatles made the first North American right, on appearance the on show. the Ed Sullivan Show in yeah. 1960-something. So everybody's had the same schedule on Sunday evening. I think all of Canada. Six o'clock was the wonderful world of Disney. And at seven o'clock was the Perry Mason Show. And Perry Mason was a criminal lawyer who won every case. Every Sunday night, a case got done. And not only did he win the case by getting his client off, but he always exposed who the real criminal, usually killer, was during the courtroom scene. It was great. I loved it. And I wanted to become a criminal lawyer. But this is, I mean, you were really a lawyer. I mean, I, I really wasn't a lawyer. Well, I, was, I, I practiced I, for I 10 was, months. Were, you were a real lawyer. Yeah. yeah, I was really a lawyer. I took companies public. I did real estate deals. I had some pretty good clients. You're making money, And of you're course. making all kinds of good money. You're making as much money as a lawyer could make yeah, right. in those days. We had great practice. But it, and, and you have a family, presumably, at this point. And, Three kids. Right. And so what was the catalyst where you're like, I'm going to go risk it all. Yeah, I did. And I believe you joined council, right? And took over the, the real estate mutual yeah, I came fund? in right at the bottom. I was president yeah. of the real estate entity. Right. Which, uh, uh, what made me do it? Uh, there, there, there were, like I always tell people, there are a hundred reasons I left law, but uh, a few of them, probably the two big ones were, I didn't, I ended up, most of my clients, I didn't like them. I, I just didn't like them. And I didn't like being at their beck and call at a certain point. You know, call it arrogance, call it whatever you want, negative thing. You know, I, I decided one day, I said, you know, I'd like to be the guy that sets the meetings rather than has to show up when you're told. Wow, you were on the wrong side of the table. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of my clients, I looked at them and I said, you know what they're doing? I can do a lot better than they can. At least as good. Because I, I was the guy saving them from their mistakes. And a lot of things went wrong, particularly in the early 80s. That's when interest rates went to 20%. You know, you would think this is high. Whew. Try, try doing a building at 20% interest. And, um, and, and so, you know, I was busy saving them. And uh, so, you know, there was a whole bunch of reasons yeah. like that. And part of it was I was about to turn 40. Uh, and I said, you know, if I stay here another few years, this is it. I'm going to stay here forever. This, this right. is what I'm going to be doing, doing my doing. whole life. Yeah. And is that really what I want to do? And I came to the conclusion, no. I went home to my, my wife. I'd already been married. I got married when I was 21. So I'd already been married then, like 18, 19 years. We had three kids. We lived nice. We had a house, had cars. You know, right. Life was good. Um, and I said, you know, I think I'm going to go into business. I'm going to go work for counsel. I'm going to stop being a lawyer. She said, okay. That's what you think is right. She's great. Yeah. So, so you're new. You leave law. You go into real estate during the worst time ever. No, I had two good years. Okay, you had two good years. <laughs> two good years. What are you thinking at this point? You just made this huge decision. Right. You left the law firm. You're managing partner of a very prestigious firm. Right. To, thinking, to run to run well, a fund that's effectively insolvent. I'm thinking about going back to law. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Amongst other you were, things. You were, yes. Yeah. And uh, but I really didn't want to do that. And uh, my the, the CEO and main shareholder of council was a guy named Alan Silver. And I said to Alan, I said, uh, "What are we going to do? We got some money now in the company um, because we we sold the trust company. What do you got in mind?" He said, well, I, I want to go into the healthcare business. I said, really? What do you know about the healthcare business? No, it's a growing field, Eddie. <laughs> I said, well, I don't want to do that. He said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I, I, I want to stay in the real estate business. And uh, he said, well, how are you going to do that? I said, well, you know, this little mutual fund, maybe I'll take it and try to reorganize it. I've been reading about these things called REITs in the States, Real Estate Investment Trust. They seem like a really good idea to me. And there was not there was no REITs in Canada at this point. Zero. Zero. And he said, REITs? Real estate? He says, you're nuts. You want to do that? You're on your own. I said, okay, I'll do it. And at that point, we became actually uh, in assets uh, 1997, I guess. Uh, maybe by the time we closed, it was 98. A billion-dollar company. Wow. Amazing. And, and, and that, that was part of my the compelling story. Because in those days, to become a billion-dollar company, that was a big deal in Canada, you know. And and you, you still were like a big a, deal. You were like a real person. <laughs> it it uh, and he and I and I said, you know, I said I think there's a real advantage in size in this business. 
Because um, of the economy of scale? Because of- Economy of scale, but also building up your capital base. Uh, because your capital base is your safety net. Uh, my father, you should rest in peace, he, uh, well, he died in 1996, so he didn't see a lot of this happen. But in 1994, and when I was just getting, getting the, took it public and I get organized, and I was trying to explain to him, and he was pretty unsophisticated. He was a house builder. Right. And he said, well, Eddie, you know, can you explain it to me? So I'm busy explaining it to him, probably overly technical. But after about 20 minutes, he said to me, I think I got it. He says, people give you money. You buy real estate with it. You make a living doing that. I go, yeah. And you pay out income to those people but you never have to give them your, their money back. If they want their money back, they go sell it somewhere. To somebody else? On the stock market. He said, I said, you got it, Dad. You actually got it. <laughs> he says, Eddie, this is a good business. <laughs> <laughs> when you don't have to give the equity back, this is a good and, business. And he probably said it, in that, and, and it with an accent, right? Like, exactly. Yeah. Eddie, this is a good business. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it is a good business. And, and I realized very quickly, equity, capital, was the key to real estate. And still is. Ed, uh, Jonathan, when we were talking to him. Well, explain I, I who Jonathan said, is. Yeah, Jonathan Gitlin, yeah. CEO of, of Real Can Now, your, your uh, successor. Um, Two years, almost exactly. Right, who was the head of acquisitions when you went into the U.S. We were just talking about and really cut his teeth acquiring all these properties in the U.S. Uh, I called him. I said, we're interviewing Ed. I said, what is really his superpower? I mean, what is it that makes him so special and such a titan of industry being able to build this incredible business? He said, you know, Ed uh, has a tremendous ability to trust his gut. Yes. You have, you have mentored, you've been Sigliari to a lot of people. I heard a story that you told once where a client of yours said, uh, hey, Eddie, I just closed a deal with Metro Grocery Store in Cornwall. Give the guy a call and go make the deal happen. Yeah. Call Metro and you say, let's get the deal. And the guy says- He just laughed. He just laughed. He said, we talked about maybe talking about this at one point. So you, you've played a, a role as- advisor, mentor uh, to so many people, uh, including your, your, your children and your grandchildren. How do you teach judgment? I don't know. Uh, you, you know what? what I, uh, part of that speech uh, at, uh, when they gave me that honorary doctorate but was uh, I tell people you always got to be curious. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm innately curious about everything. And I said, and you never know what information will be useful. I mean, you're in medicine, you shouldn't just read medical journals. You've got to read everything. I mean, I'm a news junkie, uh, I have to admit, to this day. I mean, you know, whether it's on TV, it's on my phone, I still get newspapers, like actual paper. Mm -hmm. My kids think I'm nuts, but it's very good for making fires up at the cottage. <laughs> and <laughs> so they forgive me. And, um, but you just, I think you have to be insatiably curious about what's going on everywhere in the world. How do you stay curious? Pardon? How do you stay curious? How do you continue that curiosity? I don't know. I just am. Uh, you know what? You uh, like, you, you, you just, I also think you never should stop learning. It's like nobody ever knows enough. So that's actually interesting because the next area I want to start to talk about is you retired a couple years ago. I did. Two years ago, I believe. Almost exactly. Almost exactly. That's a big deal for you. Arguably a year late. Okay. But Argu you got these two new companies. You got Oz and well, Chesswood? Well, yeah. Well, Chesswood, I, I was involved in, I've been involved in for 30 years, but about seven or eight years ago, I walked away. Uh, and which, actually what went is right Chess, off the Chesswood? Chesswood's an alternative lender. Um, basically, not cars, although we went back in the car business. So we started in the car business a long time ago. And uh, mainly in the United States, although now it's about 60% American, 40% uh, Canadian. We've got about a book of about $2.5 billion of uh, average ticket size, $75,000. Wow. So a small alternative lender, uh, high risk, high interest rates. Uh, we get a 3 4% default rate. That's good. Very, very good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you're not really, I mean, you're retired somewhat, but how did you think about retiring and, and, and why did you decide He's to do retired. The meeting went from 7 yeah. to 7.30. Right, now yeah, it's yeah, 8. Yeah, now He's, he's retired. retired. Yeah. I'd, I'd never want to do nothing. Okay. Okay. Uh, fortunately, my father, and, and, and again, you learn lessons by watching and learning, sure. I think. You know, how do you teach... Uh, instinct you teach judgment uh, you, you you get people to watch and and pay attention but my father had a if there's such a thing a small stroke in his early 60s and in those days the doctor said oh it's from stress mr Sancho. you got to retire so what did that mean to him he retired 
sold off whatever land he had left that he was ready to build houses, sold He built a couple of commercial properties. He kept one. He said, Eddie, I got to have somewhere to go, uh, you know, to collect rent, to do something. So, and he, he really retired. Within three years, he was seriously depressed because he said, he actually said to me, he says, you know, I'm good for nothing. I said, Dad, you're going, they had a place in Florida. I said, you're going on to Florida? No. I said, what do you mean you're not going to Florida? You're going to, we're going to Florida the last five years. You're going to stop going. I said, no. He says, Florida's for people to take a vacation at work. I mean, this is how depressing it is. I don't work. I don't deserve a vacation. How can you deserve a vacation? So, I, and it got more, like he really, ultimately, I think it just, it finished him off. But, uh, uh, so I, that was, that was firsthand. And then just myself, I know I always like to be busy. It doesn't mean I don't like to take four hours off and go play golf. Right. Or, or, or go, go to the cottage. This, yeah, you know, you know, go to the cottage. Well, the cottage the is, is another topic we're supposed to cover. Apparently, you were not always a cottage lover. Cottage. You weren't come, a cottage guy. I'll come back to that. But <laughs> retirement full-time, and I, I see some of my friends. I don't want to name names. Yeah, sure. But they get stupid. Right. Uh, when, they, when they're really retired. Now, most of them, like, they, they had a business. They sold it. And now, literally, they have nothing to do. These are guys who every morning left their house, 7, 7, whenever they left, 7.30. And they go and... You know, be be you know, trying to make money, doing this, running, and suddenly, oh, you want me to go pick up a challah? <laughs> That's what I'm doing today. And, I get it. You know, I'll go pick up yeah. one of the grandchildren we, from school. That, yeah. That's my job. I mean, you're 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 in you're in you know this is uh this is sort of a, a mutual club in that way because Dave and I feel the same way. I've I mean, never wanted to. We, we don't watch you know, football on Sundays, we, we create podcasts with interesting people. I mean, right. our lives are filled with interesting things to do. But yeah. as a good segue, family is extremely important to us and how difficult it is to maintain, call it harmony, call it balance with your kids, your wife, and still build this business that is not, let's face it, eight to five or it's 24 seven, right? So how did you- and, and When I was your yeah. age, the, the, the phrase work-life balance did not Not exist. a thing, right. But, and yet, and yet, one of the things uh, Jonathan pointed out is that you've um, done such an amazing job to establishing strong relationships with both your kids and your grandkids, and you're very close with all of them. How are you able to do that well, and I, still build real can? Well, how for, do we do that? I, how, 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 how do we do, do it? You yeah. have to have great, honestly, you have to have a great spouse, and you, then you have to take certain times, like... Once uh, my son, uh, one, one of my grandkids asked me, uh, I said, uh, Zadie, you got any regrets? I said, I never have regrets. You know, you, you ask me deals. Like, I, I just don't, no point in looking backwards. Mm -hmm. Whatever happened, happened. Now move on. Yeah. Uh, I think I learned that from my parents. Yeah. Never look back. And um, I said, I don't have regrets, but nah, I pretended to have a regret. I said, but, you know, but if I, if I had to do it over again, Maybe I would have spent a little more time with you guys when you were little, you know, with my kids, your parents. And my son, Daniel, who uh, is a very successful young man. He, he's not so young. He's 48. And uh, he turned to me and says, you spent enough time with us, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> it was okay. That's Daniel. Um, his wife thinks he and I share a brain. Okay. But anyway, um, uh, you know what? I did manage to, as busy as I was, uh, I knew I needed a break just for me uh, and, and and for my family. So uh, at Christmas time, didn't matter what else was going on, we'd go away for three weeks with the whole family. We'd go to, we didn't go to Turks and Caicos, but we'd go to Caribbean, go to Florida, went to Hawaii three times, then I decided it wasn't worth it. It was just too far. Too far, too far. It was I just agree. too far after three, three. We went there. It's beautiful, yeah. gorgeous, but just too far. But we always- But the Jews are all the same. Hawaii is beautiful. It's too far. Too far. <laughs> It's true. Unless you live in Vancouver. <laughs> Most gorgeous place in the, in the world. It's like, ah, it's, it's a little far. far, no? So anyway, um, <laughs> you're right. But the, <laughs> the, uh, uh, so I always spent three weeks. And then my wife, uh, because I could be a guy, I mean, I could, I, I could, just the way I was, you know, whatever had to be done, I just do it. And if that meant I, I was not home four nights a week, you know, I wasn't Tell home. Me. So... She, early on, when I was still a lawyer, she sort of made a deal with me. And she said, Eddie, look, I know you got to do what you got to do. You know, that's your job is to make money so we can live nice. But 
three rules. Number one, you always got to come home for Friday night dinner. Okay. You know, I understand if a bomb's going off or something in one of your buildings, you got to come home for Friday night dinner. If you got to leave later, leave. But you got to be home. Shove us dinner together. Got to have it. Number two, uh, you have to be home for dinner at least one other night a week during the week. She says, I'm tired. She says, that's for me. I'm tired of having dinner with just the three kids. You know, it'd be nice to be able to and talk you're an to adult. Yeah. And, and, and if after they go to bed, you got to leave again. No problem. Go. But you got to be home one night at dinner. And she says, Saturday night, I don't care how tired you are by Saturday night, we're going out socially with somebody else, other adults. Doesn't sound like a lot. Doesn't to sound that bad. No. And so I said, "Okay, okay you're I right. You know, I, I'll." So I always did that, and we always went away for three weeks with the kids. So somehow, but you know what? For and we've been really blessed with with our children. They're all great. Uh, they all live here in Toronto, which I worked hard at because uh, two of them went to school in the states, and then, you know, at, at the, the cottage uh, probably helped. Well, yeah, but the cottage is recent. I was. Uh, uh, Mr. Anti Water. Like I don't know why anybody wants to go north of Steeles. <laughs> I, I never got it. I never understood cottages. I used to make fun of them. Oh, look at them sitting there. Oh, look at a beautiful sunset. It's a bunch of morons. <laughs> that that was my view. Yeah. <laughs> they make a fire and look at the sunset. That, that sounds like a lot of fun to me. I mean, I believed in getting things done. Yeah. So then, uh, about five years ago, six years ago, yeah, maybe a little over five. I, I decided I, I, I'd already turned 70. And I said, you know, I can't keep working forever. I got to make room. It's a public company. Right. And, you know, it, uh, I, I got to make room for the next guy. And plus, I didn't want to work this hard anymore. And so I said, I got to start making plans. Got to start planning ahead and getting succession planning, but also planning for myself. Like, what will I do when I don't work full time? And uh, so, I, so I, I remember this summer, I took a practice week off, which I never did. I took, took a week off. I just didn't, I'm not coming into the office this week. And I went to play golf with the, the other old guys that had already tired or sold their Picked businesses. up a challah? Picked <laughs> up a challah one day. And I came home at the end of the week. I said, Franny, if I got to do this for a whole summer, because we were getting tired of traveling. We used to go away in the summer too, just two of us. Kids would go to summer camp. Sure. We'd go away for two, three weeks. Uh, I said, I'm getting tired of traveling. I said, I, I can't spend I, I can't spend the summer like this. Let's do something else. She said, what? I said, how about buying a cottage? She's wanted a cottage for 40 years, <laughs> as had my kids. I said, how about we buy a cottage? So we did. I, I bought it. My timing turned out to be perfect. I, I bought it in the fall of 2018. Perfect. 2019 was our first summer in it. And then the next year, a pandemic hit. Everybody showed up. Right. And apparently you, 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 no boats, no water, no thank you. But then within a week, you had like a f whole flotilla worth of boats. Well, if you're going to do something, you do it. Yeah, well, you're also on Lake Joseph, one of the most, I think, right? You're on Lake Joseph? Right. On Lake yeah. Joseph. That's actually yeah. one of Harley's favorite sayings. It was, it was by accident. Is how you do anything is how you do everything. Well, I, you know what? We made up our mind. And I have a good friend of mine, Howard Sokolowski, who's on Lake Rosso. Uh, the only thing I asked Fran, I said, Fran, I said, do you want to be in Muskoka or do you want to be on Lake Simcoe? Eddie, we're not going up for the weekend. Let's go where it's beautiful. Let's we're go. going to Muskoka. I said, okay. She says, but like always, she says, a couple of conditions. It's got to be big enough that all our kids can come up with their families and stay. And we got to know some people in the area. I don't want to have to, I'm too old to make new friends, mm -hmm. which is not true. We make a lot of new friends up there. So I said, okay. So I call up my friend Howard, who had a cottage on Russell and was a big cottage guy. But I said, Howard, I'm thinking of buying a cottage. Great, I'll be your consultant. <laughs> so we, we go up and I, he, I said, I don't need you as a consultant. Give me a name of a good broker. He gives me a broker. He said, well, when you're going up, I'll come with you. Okay. So we go up with the broker and uh, we look, looked at like three, four places. And there was only one. It was a fairly new cottage. Uh, built like five years ago because I decided I didn't want to build because it takes forever. Too, too long. I was too old. And um, so we bought this cottage, you know, and it, it was great. And and so I told the agent, I said, you know, I think this is the one. Uh, Howard says, you can't buy the cottage yet. I said, why not? He said, well, you haven't seen it from the water. I said, you got to see it from the water. <laughs> I said, well, why? 
He says, you got to. So anyway, he insisted I go over to his cottage with him and get in his boat. We boated over. To, it's November. It was cold. <laughs> and we boated over to my cottage. And <laughs> if you want to cut this out later, you can. But I watched. This is we, amazing. We're coming at it from the water. And I didn't know the property. It was, it's a big property. It's about 1,100 feet of lakefront. There's a flagpole on the point. It's a, it's a point called Hemlock Point. It's off, off Hemlock Point Road. And there's a flagpole. And on the flagpole, there's two flags. It's a Canadian flag on top and a German flag underneath it. And we're both looking at this flag, Howard and I. Two Jews. And my wife says, what are you doing? I said, how can I buy this cottage? <laughs> <laughs> I'm buying it from a German. I said, a guy who flies a German flag. And she says, why don't you look at it? You're liberating it from a German. <laughs> I said, you know what? You're right. And what have I got against Germans at this point? He's obviously a Canadian guy. But proud of his ger yeah, German heritage. Sure, yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, I, I met the guy. His name was, uh, from, he was from Vancouver. Yeah. He was actually in the gaming business. He, he cool. made a fortune in video games. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he still does. Uh, and he decided to build another car. He liked building cars. So we bought it. Amazing. And uh, I said to Fran, I said, look, there used to be a German flag up there. What about we put up an Israeli flag? She says, you don't think you're enough of a target? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So there's only a Canadian flag up there now. We heard you say this. I'm, I'm going to repeat it because I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing, and it's something that Dave and I think a lot about. This is about defining success. Giving financial security to your family is number one for me. My family is equally important. I have three children and nine grandchildren, and watching them grow and succeed is what I call success. I want to focus on the first part of that, which is financial security. Because a theme that, that Dave and I talk a lot about and a lot of our guests talk about is that there is a sense that for a lot of us, we're not enough. We don't have enough. We've not, we're not doing enough. We've not done enough. At this point- Enough, given, enough is, a, is a big word. It's, that's right. Yeah. At this point in your life, Eddie, you've done, you've done enough, uh, way more than we've done. And for some people, we've done enough. Um, do you feel like you finally have that security that you were hoping for as a kid? Do you think um, your family has that security? First of all, the answer, yes. Uh, do I ever stop worrying? No. You don't. Uh, but if I may tell, I, I, I warned you, I give long answers. Please, this is great. This is what we like. Uh, when I was in probably my late 50s, mid to late 50s, uh, sort of the earlier part of this century, so maybe it was the late 50s, I looked around, I'd always been nervous. You know, and I've been up Come on. 30, An anxious Jew? Come on, 30 please. years yeah, ago, yeah. I had a negative net worth in the early 90s. Literally, I owed more money than I was worth. Negative net worth. At, and you're mid-40s at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I was, so I was nervous all the time. Yeah. It, it, that doesn't go away so fast. And from my father, he taught me from, you know, my job was to make financial security for my family, period. And... Uh, I'm laughing because my daughter, she still reminds me that she was going to Tufts University at the time. Suddenly she gets in the mail for me a check for 25,000 US. She's in third year. She calls me up. She says, and no letter. Oh, with a little note. Just deposit this in your account. She calls me up. What's going on? I said, I don't know where I'm going to, what's, what's going to happen to me financially in the next year. It's 1992, that time. And I said, I want to make sure you got enough money to finish school. Wow. This is for your next year. So just put it in your bank accounts in your name. I don't own it anymore. It's your money. And you got for school for next year. She said, maybe I should come home and not go to school. I said, just finish. That's like, don't do That's the worst thing you can do. So I was always nervous. But around the early 2000s, I realized, you know what? However you define financial security, and as, as everybody knows, the number keeps moving. I mean, I remember when I was totally. in high school, I figured if I could get have a job where I made ten thousand dollars a year. Oh. Yeah. And then and then at one point, and I don't want to sound ridiculous, you look at it and you say, if I could ever have ten million dollars, I own the world. Right. And then suddenly the, the numbers keep moving. And yeah, because your lifestyle changes, your expectations change, things change. But at a certain point I said, you know, I actually have enough that I don't worry about financial security. I'm going to be able to keep and maintain the Your lifestyle. lifestyle we got. Yeah. Um, 
from what I already had. Was there a moment where you felt you made it? Uh, no, it just sort of dawned on me over a right. period of time. There, there wasn't a, there wasn't one big deal. It was just you know running, 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 and then suddenly go hmm, maybe I crossed the finish line. And uh, at that point, I go so I've lived my adult life with this one goal: financial security for me and my family. That's, that's job number one. What do I do now? So again, being curious, I I, I actually read some books philosophy books i actually talked to rabbis which i avoid doing usually like the you know mm -hmm. not not my favorite thing talked to a lot of smart people and uh, i actually got the best answer from uh from a rabbi uh, you know uh, orthodox guy he says you know what eddie he says your your purpose in life at this point is to be happy i said what does that mean he says well the happy means different to everybody there's no, it doesn't mean go sit and take drugs and sit in a corner. It means different things to everybody. So what do you enjoy doing? I said, well, I actually like working. I, and I, I like making money because that's how you define it. Is your work successful or not? I mean, unfortunately, yeah, some people how you have keep forgotten score. that, but that's how you keep score. Is, is your work being productive? Well, you made money? Yeah, probably. So keep working. Keep making money. What else do you like? I said, well, I like spending time with my family. Spend more time with your family. And I said, you're just talking about doing what I'm doing. He says, but you're a happy guy, Eddie. I said, yeah, I am. So just keep doing it. And it was pretty simple. You already had what you wanted. Basically. Yeah. But I needed him to, I figured there was some formula, like, what do I do now? Yeah. Well, it starts as a need, but it becomes this, you know, business. Yeah. And it becomes this pure love so, at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So to this day, do I enjoy making money? Sure. Yeah. It's great to make money. Do I, do I need the money? No, that's yeah. not the point at this point, happily. Let's actually uh, talk about a little bit about philanthropy. Right. And how important it is uh, in, you know, for Jews and how we're taught at a very young age that we got to give. Well, that, that's part of the, you know, the self-reliance of a community we've talked about earlier. Um, I think one of the greatest things about the Jewish community, I mean, there's, there's a lot of great things about us. Do we punch above our weight? Without it. I mean, it, it, it's all, it, it's, it, it's a hard one, what I'm about to say. You know, you, you've got comedians like Russell Peters, Dave Chappelle, and the reason I, oh, Jews control Hollywood. Well, we don't control Hollywood. Are we disproportionately represented there? Probably. For sure. Yeah. Guaranteed. In fact, I read a book once, and I'm sorry for wondering, but a great little book, just a little book. It was called A World of Their Own, How the Jews Invented Hollywood. Because if you go back to like the 1920s and earlier, sure. every studio was started by Jews, Warner Brothers. Right. Metro, Metro Golden, Golden, Metro Mayor. Golden yeah. yeah. I mean, you go Columbia. I mean, they're all started by Jews who were running away from New York because Edison had a patent on film. <laughs> and the light was good out there. So they ran away. And they were all immigrants, some of them, or, or children of immigrants. And at one time, the Jews created Hollywood. They, they created an America that didn't exist, the Andy Hardy, movie, Andy Hardy movies. But, do they, but so the, we do punch way above our weight. I mean, we own more basketball teams per capita. And yet, you know, in the United States, which is a much larger, well, I don't know if you ever get asked. Periodically, I get asked, how many Jews are there in Canada? And when I give them the answer, eh, give or take 350,000. Come on. It's less than 1%. Of the global population. They said, yeah. that's not possible. 25% of Nobel Prize winners. Yeah. 25%. I said, look, there's only 15 million in the whole world. Right. And they said, what? I go, that's it. I said, guess what? We're finally back to where we were in 1938. It's true. As, as a, you know, and a much, world population has doubled in the meantime. So I said, there ain't a lot of us. Yeah. And of course, nobody, like, so they look at us, and that's why there's, a, there's, I think there's, I think a lot of anti-Semitism is envy. A lot of anti-Semitism is, what are they doing that causes them to be disproportionately successful? What are we doing? I think uh, historically, a great, great emphasis on learning. Okay, I mean, uh, no different than a lot of the Asian societies. 
Uh, you know what? A uh, kid doesn't go to university. What? A kid, you know, when I was a kid, uh, if you weren't a professional, what? You didn't go to law school. You're not medical school. At least become an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was my fallback if I didn't get into law school. It was, that's everybody's fallback, I think. No, I no, no disrespect to any of the accountants, but that's everyone's fallback. Everybody, yeah. So there was, I, I think, uh, a real uh, focus on education. I think a real focus on self-reliance. Uh, my generation, your generation, greatest thing is to go have your own business, be your own boss. Uh, because of that sort of theory, you know, a feeling of self-reliance, uh, I'm not saying we don't do it, we do, but the, the sort of guy who goes into a low level in a big corporation and slowly works his way up, it's that's not, not us. There are occasions where that happens, but that's not a typical Jewish path. Typical Jewish path, go to work for a big corporation, figure out what the hell they do right. And go do it. And then go do it yourself. Yeah. That's so we're, we're entrepreneurial by nature. And I think that comes from, and the self-reliance comes from not being able to trust that you're going to get a fair shake from the rest of the world. Um, well, they wouldn't hire us at one point. Yeah. When I came out of law school, I mean, I, listen, I graduated in 1970, a long time ago. So in 1969, I was going to look for articling positions. Well, it was well known. There was the big seven or eight law firms that wouldn't hire Jews. The banks wouldn't hire Jews. Yeah, Goodman's wasn't around at that point, I suppose. Goodman's was around. There was Goodman and Goodman, but they hired Jews. Yeah, they were the only so one. So we went to Goodman's, uh, no, no, the Fogler's, mm -hmm. uh, Goodman and Carr, mm -hmm. uh, Minden Gross. There were, there was, we created our own law firms. We created our own accounting firms. Our own golf clubs. Our own hospital. Our own, Right. Well, I, I in in my speech at TMU, and I was trying to explain it. I said, "Look, you ever wonder why in every city, except for Montreal, uh, where they called it Jewish General, yeah. right. there's a Mount Sinai, Sinai hospital. Yeah. There's one in New York. There's one in Toronto. There's one in it used to be. I mean, Cedar Sinai yeah. in in Los Angeles. There's a big one in Miami. Do you ever wonder about that? Well, let me explain why. Because for a long time, Jews couldn't get into medical school. Well, finally, they forced their way into being able to get into medical school. Well, great. Then they got out and they couldn't get privileges or get accredited at the hospitals. So what do we do? Call a Daily Star and ask for an expose? <laughs> we started our own hospital. And I said, that happened in every city throughout North America. And I'm not sure why they're called Mount Sinai, to tell you right. the truth, but that's what they called it. But you were on the board of, I believe. I'm well. still on the board. I don't know why they let me still be on the board, but I'm still on the board of Mount Sinai. And uh, in, the, in the Jewish community, it was considered a great thing to go on the board of Mount Sinai Hospital because it's a Jewish hospital. Is it Jewish anymore? No. It's owned by the government like every other hospital. I mean, already, the, yeah. the, the Montreal Jewish General Hospital is not even a Jewish hospital anymore. No. Right. right. But is there a mezuzah on the door? Damn right there is. Damn right. Can you get kosher meals? Yes. Damn right. Well, and, and I'm assuming- and the majority huge, of the board is Jewish. Right, and the majority of the funding. Uh, government aside, I mean, a big chunk, what, probably 25% is private donors. Uh, yes, and 95% of that comes from the Jewish from community. From the Jewish community, right. Yeah, and I, I was chairman of the foundation for a few years, and I used to go around to Jews, and they'd give me that argument back. Say, well, it's not a Jewish hospital anymore. I said, you know what? We did a poll. And yes, you're right. Anyhow, are most of the doctors Jewish? No. Are most of the patients Jewish? No. So in that sense, do we own it? No. It's, in that sense, it's not a Jewish hospital. Let me tell you what, what our research showed us. 90% of non-Jews in Southern Ontario consider Mount Sinai a Jewish hospital. Oh. They just do. You know, was there a Mogan David on the front door? Maybe that helped. Yeah. The mezuzah, uh, you know, just the, its name. Right. And I said, so the quality of care given at Mount Sinai Hospital, and that's why I got so involved in it, reflects back on the entire Jewish community. I said, you got to think of Mount Sinai as number one, uh, being the Jewish community's gift to the people of GTA. And you got to think of it as how we are seen and represented to the people of GTA. So it's our duty to make it the best hospital that it can be, considering it's not UHN. It's a six, 700-bed hospital. And I said, I think it's an obligation because of that. I think of the UJA, uh, you know, they, as taxes. <laughs> I have an obligation because Jews got to look after their own. And I think philanthropy has become ingrained. First of all, 
if you go on the religious side, you have to. <laughs> you have to give 10% some percent per quarter, right. right? Right. You have to. Now, not that many Jews are religious. I'm certainly not. Yep. But it's something that's been in our culture for 2,000 years. Right. You learn it as a little kid. Yeah. And my parents weren't big givers. You know, I remember my father said, who, who helped me? I said, Dad. So, you know, he gave in his own way. Uh, and for me, I just figured the more money you make, the more privileged you are to be able to give and, and actually help people. And I, I don't just restrict myself to Jewish communities. I gave a million dollars to TMU. Uh, I've been on the United Way, uh, you know, cabinet and for, and for many years. And, you know, we, we do other stuff. But I have to admit, the vast majority of our, our philanthropy, my, my wife and I, uh, does go to the Jewish community uh, because we need it. There's, um, I sort of want to close with this sort of this topic. Um, and Dave, feel for jump in here. There is a theme, uh, another theme that sort of underlies this entire project around Big Shot, which is chutzpah. And call it whatever you want to call it. Um, in fact, I'd like to hear what you think it is. But I, I want to understand, I'd like to understand actually what you think chutzpah is. Yeah. How do you define chutzpah? Well, in one word, you could say nerve. You got a nerve. <laughs> you know, the old community. But it's basically chutzpah is either asking or doing something that you got no right actually believing you should either get or be able to do. Yeah. That to me is chutzpah. It's like you're, you got a nerve to think you're going to invent a new form of real estate company. What do you think you are? Well, I'm going to try. So I showed a lot of chutzpah, I guess. I never thought of it that way in, in doing that. Oh, we did. We, we, yeah, we, I mean, the reason you're on here right now is because it's, we, it's, it's the number one requirement. Okay. Chutzpah. Number two, you got to be over 70. Okay. <laughs> I got it. But uh, so, yeah, I guess and, well, you're a Canadian REIT and you're going to start buying American property. American right. property. In Texas? When, when everyone else has gone to the US <laughs> and, got, and lost their shirt. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, th those are examples of chutzpah. It's, it's uh, uh, you know, dare. Dare to try something. Dare to go start your own business. Dare to, uh, you know, start a new tea chain. Do you think it's because we have this generational, um, I don't want to say trauma, but certainly knowledge that even when the worst happens, we survive? I think, I, I think you put your finger on it. I remember my dad. And I was a young lawyer and he owned a, a small plaza with stores in the bottom, apartments on top. There's millions of them in Toronto, Montreal. And some guy wouldn't pay his rent. So my father turned off the water and the heat. Well, he can't do that. So the guy goes to court and I don't attend a court. And I'm a young, I think, I don't even know if I was a lawyer yet. I may have been a student. I go to court with my dad. And the judge says to him, he says, Mr. Sunshine, you, you can't do that. You, you have to turn back on the heat. I'm ordering you to turn back on the heat and the water. And my father says, well, he has to pay me my rent. I have a mortgage. I mean, he has to pay the rent. Well, no, you have to. No, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and just says, turns to me. He said, will you explain to your client? I said, well, it's actually my father. He said, will you tell your father that I'm going to put him in jail for, for 30 days for contempt of court if he says to me he's not going to listen to my order? So I said, I think he understands. <laughs> <laughs> so my father stands up and says, Yana, you think I'm afraid to go to jail for 30 days? You know what I've been through. It's a vacation. <laughs> Somebody else going to pay to feed me? I've got away from my wife. It's a vacation. <laughs> I mean, I know I'm sounding like Jackie Mason. It's amazing. But, it's perfect. But, but he meant it. Yeah. yeah. And I saw with a lot of the great Jewish entrepreneurs in, in those days, the survivors and the not survivors, they'd hit bottom. We'd, we'd all lived through a world or seen a world where you lost everything. So what's to be afraid of? What's going to happen? Got to start over again. I've done that already. So that's why like some of the survivors, like our whole apartment building sector here was primarily built by survivors that started apartment buildings. To be correct, Holocaust survivors. Holocaust survivors, thank you. And they had no fear. What was going to happen? And they could live cheaply. They used to live off the quarters from the washing machines. And what do you they, mean by that? Wow. Well, when you built it, if you look at the apartment buildings that still around today and people live in them uh, that were being built in the 50s, and most of them date back to the 50s, 60s, pre-war, 
Nobody built more than a fourplex. Yeah. That's four stories high. Uh, 50s, 60s, elevator technology got better. Things got better. People started building apartment buildings. Uh, and uh, CMHC encouraged it because we needed, just like now, uh, rental housing. You had all these soldiers coming back, people having families, couldn't build houses fast enough, too expensive. So uh, you didn't put a washer dryer in every apartment. If you look at New York's like this, down in the basement, there was a room, the laundry room. And you'd put in uh, washing machines and dryers. And they worked on coins. Sure. In fact, there was a company called Coinomatic mm -hmm. that some very smart guy started. And he would do it for you. Okay, most of the Jewish guys said, no, no, I'll do it myself. Thank you very <laughs> much. And I know I have friends of my dad's. They used, to, they used to play cards together. They'd show up with a bag of coins. They literally lived off the money that was coming in in the Washington. Cuff coin laundry. Yeah, they didn't live very well uh, because all the money coming in would go to pay down the mortgage as quickly as because they used to finance this to 102%. Wow. Uh, and CMHC, you could do it then. But they knew you had to pay down debt, get rid of the debt. And some of the wealthiest people I know in Toronto are their kids. Right. <laughs> Who are my age now. Yeah. Okay. Their kids. Because they, know, these they, got, they got the punishment of being handed. They a, got the punishment of getting getting 8,000 apartment units with no debt. Right. With no debt. No mortgage. They've already paid off 30 I, years ago. You right. got it. No debt. And I, I, I won't mention his name. I, I've, and he's a fairly active yeah. businessman. Yeah. And uh, I said, so uh, I said, Do you, you're in this deal. You're in that deal. I said, what are you doing all these deals for? He says, well, you know, I got this cash flow. You know, so my dad left me 8,000 units. Wow. He says, you know what the cash flow 8, is? 8,000 doors, 8,000 apartments. We're talking about. All in the GTA and in the city. Yeah. Right. And I said, no, I said, I got a pretty good idea what the cash flow is. And I said, no, about 50% has to go to cost because you're paying taxes, realty taxes, right. insurance, you know, all that stuff, hydro. And uh, he says, so I got to invest it. You know, I got to do this. I said, well, you know, if you ever want to do a big deal, I guess you could put a mortgage on one of the buildings. Looks at me like I'm a lunatic. He said, Eddie, the one thing my dad told me before he died, don't ever put mortgages on the money tree. That's what he calls it, the money tree. Because it just... Every keeps, eight million dollars right. a month at a thousand keeps you know? growing money. Yeah, well, and, and, and he already took you know the rap for this kid to be able. I mean, he he lived off coin laundry. He while, lived off the, he while lived he's off, paying on his mortgage. Yeah. Literally, I remember they used to play cards at my house, and and uh, half the guys would walk in with with a big you know the Crown Royal bags, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, the purple bags, the sure. purple bags filled with with quarters that they and and if they ran out, they say I'll go visit my other building. I'll be back in a half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and Incredible. they lived off that. That's awesome. We love these stories so much. We love the idea of, of understanding the stories, the people that came before us. Again, this is an archive because we want to capture this. We want to almost create a time capsule of these stories. Because so. frankly, we want our children and your children, your grandchildren, and your great-great-grandchildren to know what happened here. Well, and also, I mean, we've talked about this. You know, we stand on the shoulders of giants that came before us. And you, Ed, are one of those giants. Well, and, you know, whether you know it or not, well, I, you've been a huge inspiration to us. But, but I, I have to tell you one interesting thing, just going back to the point you made before, one of the things that worries me a little, okay, because I really believe one of the reasons Jews were such great entrepreneurs and wanted is because they weren't afraid of risk. You, you can't be, you know, you can't be afraid of risk. Uh, otherwise, you, you don't do anything. I've noticed when you're second, third generation and you're an heir, H-E-I-R, well, you are afraid of risk. You got you, something to lose all of a sudden. Like my friend who wouldn't put a mortgage on a money tree. Right. You got something to lose. We had nothing to lose. I had nothing to lose. David had nothing to lose. Right. So what, now some of these young people from wealthy families work very hard. Uh, most don't. Uh, I joined Oakdale, which I thought I had really arrived in 1993 or four. Okay. I didn't even play golf, but I thought it was really cool that I could join Oakdale. And until I joined Oakdale, I never knew. And I, and, and I'm you know, that there were Jews who didn't work. I, I meet a guy well, what do you, and you know, again, I don't want to mention his name. What do you do? Well, you know, play golf. I go to Florida in the winter. 
I said, you're 42 years old. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, my dad left me, the, you know, this much money or buildings, this, that, and, you know. The shirt sleeves, the shirt sleeves in three generations. No, no, no. They don't, they're terrified of, of, being of blowing that, of the money. That, right, of that. So yeah. they're afraid to take any risks. Right. And because he told me, he said, well, I went into a business once and I lost $2 million. That's it. Because I got to have enough. And so I worry a little about that. Now, but I see there always seems to be, listen, I remember Larry Tannenbaum's dad, who I met as a young lawyer, Max Tannenbaum. And I knew him as, as a young lawyer and I was in a meet with Max Tannenbaum, a giant. And, uh, you know, he uh, yet had a son, Larry, who uh, now he had four sons. So Larry was the only one who really became the entrepreneur. Larry took a, you know, he went to the old story, you take a, how do you make a small fortune? You take a large fortune and blow most of it. Mm -hmm. He took a small fortune <laughs> and made it a really large fortune. Yep. So he went the other way and he never stops working. He's older than me. And I know his son, Kenny, fantastic entrepreneur, not afraid to take risks. So it does happen, but I see too many of the other kind, like, well, I mean, I, you know, I got $10 million, so I can't afford to lose any, so I'm going to do nothing. Right. And try to live off the income. I mean, part of the sort of, you know, the, the creation of diamonds comes from the pressure, you know, it, okay. and, and when you don't have the pressure, you don't necessarily, it, it's tougher to make diamonds. Here's the good news. Part of this project is to inspire more people to exactly. take those risks, well, to I become think that, titans, I think to that. become, to, to, to rethink entire industries. I mean, you know, what you did in terms of, the, the model of a real estate investment trust, what Izzy did with creating a brand new model, a business model for how hotels yeah. will be owned property and by one party, but managed by another party and create this. Took whole, him a while to figure that part took, out. Well, he did, it, 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 but he got there. Multi-decade overnight success. Yeah. But not just that. I mean, I think what comes across in these interviews is just how much purpose you've found in these pursuits. Oh, yeah. It's life's work stuff. I mean, part of, you know, the, the idea, your father never had the opportunity to do his life's work because your father, like my father, yeah, like your father. Us. That, that's right. Uh, their, their life's work, what do you mean? Putting food on the table, roof over their head. That is what we do. We yeah. are in survival mode. Right. And because they set a foundation for us, a minimum bar, we were then able to go and build these great companies, right? right. The key for us is to make sure we maintain that momentum that we can actually build things that have never been built before with as much ambition and also as much humility as possible. But that makes the Jewish entrepreneurial DNA so unique. And then when and you special. make, yeah. no, I, 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 I and when you make, you give. give. We sat down with uh, Charles Bronfman. Obviously, yeah. Charles grew up very different than we all did. But, but Charles, he did a lot of stuff. It's and unbelievable he stuff. what he did. Yeah. He took everything yeah. that Sam gave him and he made it bigger. He created Birthright. He, he brought Major League Baseball to Canada. Yeah. Cadillac Fairview. I mean, he had as much of a chip on his shoulder as anyone did to make sure that he able he was able to continue to contribute. And yeah. that's what the show's all about. He had to prove it, although his brother Edgar and his kids. And it's, yeah, another story. That's a different story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a different story. So, like I say, hopefully there's one in each family yeah. that carries that the torch. At least one. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, but uh, because there's a lot of uh, wealth. I mean, you guys don't live here necessarily. The, the amount of wealth in Toronto not just in the Jewish community, but including the Jewish community and the Italian community um, is way out of proportion to what, what it was 20 years ago. You know, the last 20 years here in Toronto, you owned a piece of real estate, you made a lot of money. Tell me about it. I'm looking for houses now. I mean, it, it's not easy. <laughs> like I always say, I say, you know, when all my friends tell me how smart they are, I say, guys, yeah, you're smart. A blind monkey could have thrown a dart at a map of the GTA bought wherever the mat landed and, 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 you know, made money. Made money. Well, now, and then interest rates go from I said, you know, by the way, nine to zero. How smart would you be yeah. if you grew up in Buffalo? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I said, because you, the blind monkey trick right. wouldn't work there. Yeah. We should do big shot Buffalo. Yeah, Buffalo I bet there's some sharp. Uh, uh, last, last question. You have for, to be sharper. You have to be sharper, right? Yeah. Before we let you go, Eddie, um, we're sitting here uh, a little bit younger than you are. Ooh, time flies. Time flies. Time. And we're having a good time. We're catching but, up though. But I want to, uh, but I, I want to ask this final question. Sitting here with us, knowing how much of our own, whether you know it or not, how much of our own lives and our ambition has been shaped on watching people like you build incredible things. 
What's one piece of advice you, you can leave us with that you think you wish you would have known when you were at our stage, at our age? Um, I, th I think it's, yeah, that's, that's a hard question. Good question. Probably never be satisfied. Like nothing's ever as good as, as it could be, whether it's your own life, whether it's your net worth, or it's the world around you, or your own family. Things can all, you, you know, say, okay, I've done enough. I'm satisfied. It's good. And, and I, I think one thing that I, I see I share with a lot of my friends that are the same sort of both age and, and economic bracket as me, never satisfied. You know, eh, what, what can I do at the cottage this year to make it better? You know, and this, this year's project is a pickleball court. Oh, good, of course. Which I will never use. That's right. But, um, uh, you know, last year's was a vegetable garden. So, I mean, there's always stuff to do. So never be satisfied with either your life or your achievements or your business. It can always be better. There's always a better way of doing things. So that that's the piece. That. And I didn't know that for a long time. Yeah. I figured, oh, if I get to here, that's You're it. You're good. Right. Get to here, that's it. Yeah, but it's almost embrace the fact that it's always this this journey. Right, in exactly. And you keep moving the goalposts. I yeah. mean, that's the growth mindset. At and the end and of that's the what happens. Yeah. You keep moving the goalposts. I love that. That's a better way of saying it or another way of saying it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for Thank joining you for us. Thank you for coming. This it is, is great. Uh, it's a great honor to have you here. Yeah. I love it. Started from the bottom, now we're here.